Hi, everyone, and welcome to this Alan Novery Institutional Investor Forum podcast, the purpose of which is to explore the important topic of diversity and inclusion in the asset management industry and the institutional investor market in particular. I'm Paul Sampson, a partner in our funds and asset management practice in London, and this podcast forms part of our How I Made It series, one of a range of interviews with high-flying women in the industry who have reached senior roles within their organization and from whom all of us, women and men alike, can learn from and look up to. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Michelle Thompson, who is the General Counsel of the Queensland Investment Corporation, also known as QIC. Michelle has over 20 years experience specializing in corporate and commercial law with a particular focus on transactional and corporate advisory work, most recently in the financial services sector. Prior to her current role at QIC, Michelle held a number of in-house and private practice roles, including general counsel positions for two funds listed on the Australian Securities Exchange, and she was a partner at SJ Bowen in London, where she was head of renewables, clean tech and carbon across the UK and Europe prior to returning to Australia in 2012. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, Paul, and thank you very much for having me this evening, and thank you for the very kind introduction. It's an absolute pleasure to join you in what's a really interesting discussion this evening. Brilliant. Well, I think we'll we'll dive straight in. And So looking at your career to date, you've obviously been pretty busy. <laughs> I, I was hoping you could talk our listeners through I suppose, how you, you know, take us back to the start. How did you get into law in the first place? Okay, thank you. Well, I started um, wanting to be a lawyer from the age of 12, would you believe, and never never actually wavered from that course. So um, I, I equate it to a show that um, some people of my vintage and probably a little bit older would be familiar with, and that was LA Law. So that was the inspiration. And um, I... Uh, and I think at the time or a few years earlier, there was also a ballerina in there and I probably wasn't physically suited to that career path. So that was short-lived. Um, and I had a couple of other things on there like physiotherapy and things. But the the legal aspiration started at a very young age and I stuck to it. I actually um, I grew up in Cairns in northern Queensland in Australia and, um, and only moved to Brisbane when I was about 15. But that's where I did my university study in Brisbane and then moved to Sydney as a first-year lawyer. So that's sort of the, the start and the genesis of the career, I suppose. And um, I, 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 I get where you're coming from. Friends often ask me, how much is my job uh, like suits? And I always tell them, absolutely <laughs> nothing like it. And I refuse to watch any TV program that glamorizes the legal profession. But how did you find it when you, when you started out in private practice? Presumably, it wasn't quite... <laughs> Uh, like uh, like the TV programs, but but maybe maybe you had a different experience than me. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so um, look, absolutely nothing like the TV shows, at least as they then were. So um, certainly not paid as much as they seem to portray in in the shows, and an incredible amount of hard work. So I started um, as an article clerk in the property team and that nearly killed my career from an early stage and um, I then moved uh, I didn't like it I really didn't like it (laughs) 
<laughs> so I didn't like um, conveyancing. It was, you know, the single most important thing to an individual that was going on in their lives at the time and it was just not the sort of work I was interested in on a long-term basis. But um, I think it's got a lot to do with the people that you're involved with as well, doesn't it? And um, I then moved into commercial litigation and and was completely uh, hell-bent on becoming a litigator at that stage, loved the court process and um, had some really interesting matters with some really inspiring people I was working with at the time and then moved into the corporate rotation as my final rotation and loved that and stayed there and has, have never moved. So, um, yeah, that was my early sort of um, early sort of steps into my career. But I think from an early stage I've always, um, I've always made a call to go and do something that I really feel passionate about and that I'm really inspired by. And over the course of my career I've made lots of moves um, whether it's going from in-house to private practice or back again to in-house. But really for me it's about doing what I love and, you know, I absolutely am so honoured and privileged to say that I absolutely love what I do. So I'm very lucky in that sense. That is a blessing, I must say. Um, and, and clearly, I mean, I'd like to get onto your, I suppose, the variety of your experience a bit later, but I just want to stay for a moment on on the early years. So you, you, you sort of qualified into... Um, you know, an area which is, is pretty hardcore um, from, from my memory of working in, uh, I think the first deal I did, as I say did, as if I had any important role, of course I didn't, but as a, as a trainee, <laughs> as a trainee was, was, was involved, was, a, was involving, uh, it was an infrastructure deal that Babcock and Brown were involved in, where of course you, you joined in-house. What, what was it like back then in terms of I suppose the dynamic, you know, was it, because from what I remember, it was a, it was a, for me, it was a baptism of fire. Um, and I can imagine, or I, I can imagine that as a woman in that environment, it must have been fairly sort of isolating at times and, and pretty intense. Did, was that your experience? Are we talking about the Babcock and Brown experience or earlier well, just, on? Just your, I suppose your early, your early years in private practice and then, and then leading to Babcock and Brown, you know, working yeah. in infrastructure projects, M&A, what was yeah. that like as a, as a, a sort of a, a young Michelle making her way in, in the legal industry? Look, I loved it and thrived in that environment. It's um, for whatever reason um, I think certain people do and it doesn't ma- matter whether you're male, female or otherwise, um, I always felt supported throughout my early years and really felt that, um, you know, with that sort of support around you, you can actually do anything. And my mantra was always be the best person you can be in the room and hopefully that makes you come out on top. Um, and so, and that didn't, gender was really not something I necessarily considered terribly much and it, it's an interesting perspective as I reflect on it because I do think that um, that perspective and not worrying too much about that was a useful tool, probably not, you know, whether it's the best way to deal with it or not, you know, questionable, but it certainly served me well in terms of um, de-identifying from that and really making it all about capability. And that's really what I focused on in the early years. And I've always been incredibly competitive, incredibly driven, um, and that probably comes through the way I was brought up and my family. 
and and our value set. So it's um it's been a very interesting journey. And now when I'm you know so privileged to have the ability to talk to the likes of Alan Overy and you, Paul, tonight. And it does make me really reflective about how and why I navigated the way I did through things. And, you know, some of it, frankly, is good luck and good positioning and good management and being in the right place at the right time in terms of the right markets and those sorts of things. Um, but some of it's by design. So it's um, it's been a really interesting you journey You have to for me. take your opportunities when they come as well, right? And And people those opportunities come to people who put themselves in into you know in the right place and so of course good fortune plays a part in all our careers but i completely agree yeah. with you that um it's also part of it is is designed i mean did you come from did you come from a family where you know parents were working hard and was that the example you were set is that where your you know drive and ambition came from can you point to something without getting in too deep and meaningful in your, in your childhood of, 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 that led you to sort of where you are now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of it, I think, um, was driven by sport, frankly, and um, parents were incredibly hardworking, um, weren't from a privileged background at all, um, and their their big value set was you've just got to work as hard as you can to be the best that you can be. And, you know, that translated through sport and competition and, you know, if I came second, my dad was like, what happened to first? You know, that wasn't... <laughs> Sounds familiar, yeah. Half joking but not joking at all. So I was also the eldest child. So I think, um, you know, having two younger siblings and being quite a strong personality probably led to some of that as well. I don't believe in star signs or numerology or anything like that but I'm born on the first of the month and I'm a Leo so you know maybe there's something <laughs> maybe there's something in that at some stage maybe there is something to all of that I don't know but um but certainly family values and incredible hard work and a really um strong basis for integrity and your value set and knowing yourself as a human being was really instilled from me at a young age and probably quite mature from a young age as well for a range of different reasons, but um, but always for them the focus was on education and doing the best that you can you can do. So, and is that something you've taken into your own life as a, as a parent? I mean, I I was brought up in a similar way, um, and I but I sometimes struggle with my own children in getting that balance because I don't know what it's like in Oz, but certainly in in the UK um, attitudes have changed slightly towards the competitive side of things and you know taking part and everyone's a winner and, 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 and that kind of message. Whereas, you know, actually when you get in the real world, um, the competition, you know, really, really, there's not something you can protect people from. So mm. sometimes I struggle with that with my children in wanting to expose them to as much of the real world as possible, but also not making them feel under too much pressure and feeling like, you know, they have to win at everything. Um, uh, yeah. that, that is suppressing probably my natural tendency. So, as, as, as a mother, have you have you found that that balance difficult? Yeah, for sure, absolutely. And what I've found is that um, there needs to be a real perspective that you bring to your child's upbringing that really focuses in on their strengths. And you know, for me as a mum, my son's strengths are not necessarily what my strengths were. And so it's just making sure that you put them in an environment where they're going to thrive and do their best. So. Um, he's probably not as sporty as I was or athletic as I was, but has an incredible entrepreneurial bent to him and is 
currently arguing with me that the traditional school model is not from him and he should go to an entrepreneur's school and he's he's 11 so oh, he challenges I, me on a, a on a daily basis <laughs> hopefully not he's he's thrown that out a couple of times and um you know i think there's great value in studying law but i also i also do think it's a huge trade-off in terms of your 20s and 30s at least historically when you know, when I went through, there was certainly no question that you would have any amount of flexibility in terms of your work-life balance. And I think that's really changed, which I'm really excited about for people coming through the profession and their careers now. Well, we'll I think we'll come back to the dreaded uh, balance question. But I, talking, thinking about what you were saying earlier, when you said you always sort of looked after, was, was there you know, an individual, individuals you can think of, you don't have to name and shame, but, uh, you know, was there a person who really took you under their wing, you know, male or female, um, uh, and you, you can sort of describe in terms of what they did for you? Because I think one piece of advice I sort of always give people is, you know, you need to have a champion within an organization, wherever you are, you need to have someone who's looking out for you, who's going into bat for you. Um, and, you know, who, who generally provide that sort of sponsorship and mentorship and, you know, whom, whom, whom you can learn from. And, and so did you have that sort of figure in your, particularly in your early career? Probably not so much in my earlier career, to be honest. Um, there were probably more of a range of people. And I think the way my sort of mindset worked at the time was I was trying to gather the best of what I could gather out of the good pieces of leadership and mentorship and sponsorship that you could and then discarding the rest. So um, I think it's it's always been a bit of a mix and I've never really, um, I do have a range of people that I'd describe as having those roles and influence throughout my career but certainly not one single person um, and they've been male and female and not sought them out on the basis of gender but it's more of an organic um, relationship where you really feel a connection with someone where you really feel like you know you want to learn more about the way that they do things or how they operate but it's been a range of people for me and I wouldn't I'd be doing those individuals a disservice if I called one of them out I suppose and I think each of them have played a different role at different times and you know I'm still in touch with people um, who I've frankly just become good friends with because I've moved on from, you know, a firm or an organisation and I've gone to do something else. And so, but they're people that remain in my life in some senses. Um, certainly at Babcock's, um, Margaret Cole was a big influence and probably more of an influence after I left the organisation. She was the group general counsel. I was the general counsel to two of their listed funds. And um, she was such an inspiring senior executive and group general counsel, but, you know, equally on the business side, such a commercially pragmatic, amazing lawyer that had that acumen that could command a room in terms of gravitas. So when I left Babcocks and I was, you know, um, contemplating different career moves and that sort of thing, she would be the one person I would call and she would always cut to the chase about what were the pros and cons and she'd be right all over it and and understanding the way I thought as well through things and so it was a it was a great um it was a great sponsor and a great mentor um throughout different different decisions I've made throughout my career and and, and did you sort of find yourself you know modeling your approach on her or did you always have your own approach and you know 
you you would seek her out for 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 guidance because I think there's two schools of thought. One is, as you say, you pick bits and pieces from people you come across along the way, almost almost like being a parent. You know, you you kind of take the best and worst. You take the you try and take the best of what your parents did, leave out the other stuff, and then yeah. you realise that you've actually got your own things that you're not getting uh, you're not getting perfectly right. Um, yeah. Other people, I think, take a more deliberate approach of you know they they need to they need to see it in order to be it, and they almost try and mirror that person you know where where would you where would you stand on that spectrum do you think i i think i'm fairly i've, I've forged a fairly unique path i don't I, i've never modeled myself on anybody's style in particular um but as you say i take the things that i really think have been um successful or impactful or the the way i like to see things done and um, probably modelled some of that behaviour and then seeing, seeing really, I think it's really important to, to see things that you don't like and to consciously make a choice that that is not what you are going to do and that's not how you want people that work for you to have an experience that, you know, has to deal with that sort of behaviour. And I think increasingly as I've gone through my career, that's less and less, which is great. Um, but certainly earlier in my career, you know, you'd see a bit of that that you didn't like. So you can sort of discard that into the bin straight away. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I guess I'm wondering where all that sort of confidence and self-beliefs comes from, because I think a lot of our listeners, uh, you know, myself included, would, would be quite used to the feeling of, you know, of being an imposter and, wondering if they are capable of fulfilling the role they're performing but it sounds like though in your case you were you're always pretty sure of the path you were in, you were you were on and and that that didn't sort of waver is that is that a fair comment and and where and where do you where do you attribute that sort of self-belief to uh it, it's it is probably a fair comment i certainly um i'll thrive in an environment where i feel challenged so um it's not that i i I couldn't hand on heart ever say that I've had the imposter syndrome, but I'm very cognizant that lots and lots of people do. Um, but Babcock and Brown was probably the biggest challenge in a sense, you know, I'd moved out, I was on partnership track at a firm in Australia and made a very conscious choice to move out of that path, knowing what I do about, you know, the way partnerships used to work. Yes, we'll tell you you're going to be a partner in one year. It might take you four, um, whatever it might be. But, you know, obviously um, I had a lot of confidence in that role as a senior associate and I was working in China and doing all sorts of fantastic things. Um, but I, I took a conscious decision to step away from that more traditional path and, and go to Babcock and Brown. And it, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with the TV show, but there was a TV show about 15 years ago when I was at Babcock's called Thank God You're Here. And it was an impromptu, it was like an impromptu acting sort of thing where an actor would be thrown into a particular scenario and they'd have to just perform. And that's what it felt like being at Babcock's. So you were just thrown into any given scenario because coming out of private practice you're quite specialized I was a renewable energy lawyer I was working on projects and project financing deals and going to Babcock's you would be doing anything as general counsel and um, it was highly transactional at the time and it was like you know you were just impromptu on your feet and it was thrilling and fun and exciting and um, I think you garner a lot of confidence and and terrifying as well 
But you've got to find the answer. I mean, some way you will find the answer and you needed to do it really quickly. And I think going through those sorts of challenges, you know, you grow confidence um, through being put in those positions and scenarios. So I think Babcock's for me was a real highlight of my career in that sense and probably built a lot of confidence in terms of my, you know, my own self-confidence in, in my career moving forward. Yeah, that, that, that definitely resonates. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to do several secondments in my early years and it, and it, at clients and it really did, uh, you really are thrown in at the deep end. And when you've got someone from the business side, you know, standing over you, uh, yeah. with wanting an answer now, uh, suddenly you, you're able to act a lot, more perhaps a lot more quicker than you are when you're you know uh in private practice and uh maybe hiding behind the emails and so that that was a real eye-opener for me for me in terms of actually also what what it means to provide top quality legal services you know from the private mm. practice side and i think it makes you a better private practice lawyer actually having had that experience um so so i'm interested how the jump to sj Bowen occurred and and sort of why when when you you've you've kind of made that decision and then suddenly you're now a partner in london at sj bow and how, how does i mean for those people listening um who, who may not be aware sj bowen was a was a unfortunately is is, is no more it was taken sort of taken over by kwm but at the time was a elite firm in london and 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 across europe um doing a lot of private equity and m a and all, all sorts but but how, how did that come about? So um, with the move to Babcock and Brown, as I said, um, general counsel to two of the listed funds and one of the listed funds, which was the Environmental Investment Fund, started to underperform and so I acted on the takeover back to B&B. Um, but as part of my role moving forward out of that, I joined the investment firm side and starting work, started working on the transactions that would keep B&B out of um, voluntary administration, which inevitably didn't happen but that role took me to Europe and London and so I was acting on their biggest transaction to sell all of their assets um, which ultimately we did um, but the VA process unfortunately kicked off so I went through that with them. I was part of management to kept, that was kept on to unwind and destructure which you learn an awful lot through not just from a legally technical perspective but also from the human side and the impact that an organisation going into VA has on people. Um, so I learned a lot through that process and then, um, you know, London was really fortuitous in one sense. I didn't seek it out. It was, you know, my role coming from Sydney, going to London as part of that, that transactional piece. And so when I eventually got to London, I would have been about 28 at the time, I absolutely loved it and wanted to stay and that's when I started looking around the market um, and thinking what will I do next over here and um, I'd met with a couple of the partners from SJB and really loved the culture and what they were doing. A lot of the founding partners were still there um, and so I'd met with them and it, literally it was the only firm I spoke to because I loved the culture and so it was it was about the type of work that they were doing. It was about the opportunity that I had to go in and build a practice from scratch um, to be head of renewables, clean tech and carbon across Europe and the UK. Um, huge sponsorship from the partners that I was talking to. They knew Babcocks. They knew that there was obviously an opportunity for the spin-offs to become clients, which they inevitably did. Um, so continued to act for them. So 
Um, but it was a really interesting part of my journey, I suppose, in in one sense, because we'd been in discussions about the partnership for about 18 months. Um, and because the VA process ran for quite a long time, it took a long time. And um, by the time it went to the partnership vote at SJB, I'd found out I was pregnant. And it was, I don't know, a couple of weeks before the vote. And I rang the partners and I said, I'm pregnant, you know, expecting them to run a mile and go, okay, well, this is all not going to happen. It's the wrong timing or whatnot. And to their credit, um, they put it to the partnership vote and it was unanimously approved and I was appointed as a partner. And I think that's a real credit to to the firm. And they said you could join um, straight away or you can wait and have the baby and then you can come back and join us, which was really clever actually um, because I always felt compelled to come back more quickly after I had my maternity leave. So um, it was it was really great to be given that flexibility and that confidence to to come back when I had a had a child into a partnership role and I staggered my re-entry into the partnership I, and I did start before I had the baby so I started marketing and going to lots of client meetings and doing some work before I went on maternity leave and then took the maternity leave and came back about seven months later so yeah incredible experience though absolutely exhausting <laughs> But a good story from the firm's perspective in terms of being a bit more forward thinking at the time, I think. So, yeah, I guess that was relatively unusual back back then. I mean, more more so mm. now. Uh, but I mean, I'm interested in what you said earlier about you know uh, that you didn't think about gender so much, and I think that's quite a refreshing perspective because I think o- often with some of these issues we can think about them and talk about them so much that they they become almost self fulfilling. Uh, yeah. So you never just you never felt you know sort of part of this male dominated world and that you you didn't have the opportunities that men had and you know the the the, the some of the uh you know messages we we get from 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 women quite consistently in the industry as to in terms of missing out on opportunities and uh you know promotions and doing doing sort of clients events in the evenings and uh, everything being f- sort of designed around a you know a, a sort of a male dominated organization i'm interested in how your views were formed on that subject and did you find they would they, it was different in each place or did you just literally go about your career and think this is what i want to do and i'm just going to let my talent speak for myself and i'm the fact that i'm a woman is irrelevant largely the latter um, I mean, I was cognizant that I was in a male-dominated environment in almost every situation, but that almost became the norm. And, you know, Babcocks, we were fortunate enough to have the group general counsel being an absolutely exceptional leader and person, happened to be a female, but that's how I thought about it. She just happens to be a female. It's not, you know, it was so capability-based that it wasn't, it just It just wasn't an issue, I guess, Um did I always want and wonder why there weren't more female people in senior positions? Absolutely. Um, but for me, probably quite introspective and, you know, if we talk about what I would have told myself years ago, it would have been to be more cognizant of the role that other people play or might play in an organisation when I was a lot younger. I'm very cognisant of it now, obviously, but certainly when I was younger, I was probably really self-motivated, to be honest, and, um, you know, was really focused on what do I have to do to be successful? What is it that 
you know, it means to me to be successful. And I really wasn't worried around me whether it was male, female or otherwise. I mean, I never um, was really, I, I never felt held back by the fact that I was female in any given circumstance. And in fact, um, was quite overt about what I expected and, you know, if it came to remuneration discussions. And that's a really hard thing um, for, for some people, male or female, or remuneration discussions and performance discussions. And, um, y- you know, it's it's all about building your own confidence and your own brand to, to make you more comfortable in those situations. But, but they're not easy for everybody. And I did you know, you can see throughout my career, I've made conscious choices to move on from organisations where I didn't feel it was working for me, but usually because I felt that I couldn't add any more value, to be frank, other than the move from SJ and back to Australia, which was all about family, um, frankly, to come back to Australia. And so, but I've never stayed anywhere that I've been unhappy. I've moved on and I've done something else. And, you know, I wanted to be, you know, either a partner or a general counsel and was really driven to make sure that I was in a leadership role because I thought I had a lot to add as a leader in law. And I think that um, it's something I'm really passionate about because when I was going through, there weren't a lot of great leaders in one sense. I mean, we're not, we weren't taught going through university how to be great leaders in law. We were taught how to be really great lawyers. And then when you get into the firms, people are, promoted on the basis that they're great technical lawyers, not because they're great managers of people. So it was something that I felt was a real gap in the profession and became really passionate about it probably about 10 10 to 12 years ago as I was moving through different roles and just thought, you know, I think I've got a lot of value to add in terms of, you know, getting the best out of our people and, and building their confidence, like you say, to have those difficult decisions, but to also understand that they can be better than where where they think they're at at the moment and really enabling that environment for growth so it's something I'm really passionate about I'm really proud of being able to do that at QIC at the moment yeah I think that's a fantastic point and I think actually in as a as a private practice partner your job is quite unusual in one sense because you're sort of leading the execution of the work the origination of that work the delivery of it uh, and then you, at other times, you're sort of a debt collector, you're, you're a mentor, you're a counsellor, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're a marketeer, you know, uh, the, the, the list really goes on. And actually, you, more than anything, you are a leader. And I think the legal profession does have a lot of work to do to, to develop its leaders. I mean, mm. I'm fortunate enough to be at a firm that takes that very seriously and has, you know, all sorts of programs to develop our people from sort of day one to to you know 20 years in um but but i do agree with you that there is a huge gap there i mean i think that's a great segue into you know life at qic and 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 what you've built there because you know from our previous discussions i I, it's 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 a really impressive story so i I was hoping you could briefly talk our listeners through the team you've built at qic and how you've how you've really gone about sorry building that legal function yeah sure so i joined in 2018 and at the time there was no standalone legal function and um, I was brought in to build the legal function which I thought was just such an exciting opportunity and really for me in terms of my expertise my technical background it really harked back to the Babcock and Brown days of investment management and 
um, funds formation. So it was incredibly exciting from that perspective and an incredible breadth of work. So when I joined, we had some amazing talent already existing within QIC from a legal perspective, but they were decentralized and embedded in the business. And so I really had a clean sheet of paper to really build the team from scratch in terms of the way we structured it, set it up, what was the strategy, what's our brand, what's our, what's our vision. Um, and so it's been a, an amazing journey because to have really talented lawyers like that sitting across the business, embedded in the business, being so heavily relied on by the business, part of that was not only just having them sit centrally, whether it's in Brisbane, Sydney's a bit different and Melbourne where they will sit with the business. But to really have that incredible focus on their career trajectory, their mentoring, setting up a leadership team such that they've got a career path more aligned to like a law firm, but then really working through, you know, processes of assurance, but our strategy and how we really wanted to position ourselves when it came to the business. And some of that meant taking a little bit away from the business as well. As, as giving them a lot more strategic oversight in terms of deals that they were doing and that sort of thing. And that's been really exciting to see the team really stretch into those roles because I think historically when you've got incredibly capable people in the organisation that happen to be lawyers, there can be that shift in terms of getting them to do more non-legal work and almost outsourcing some of their commercial roles and I'm really passionate about getting that balance back towards the middle and making sure they're doing the legal work, but they're also involved at the front end such that they're part of the business direction, um, moving the direction that the organisation is going in from a strategic point of view and really understanding the corporate strategy and aligning our strategy with the corporate strategy. So that's, it's been great. And The team, we've had relatively low attrition over the years and we've been able to build out the team because QIC continues to be on a growth path, which is really exciting. Um, And we've built the team in the UK. We're building it out in the US, in in Australia as well. We've just got top talent that sits throughout the entire um, breadth of the team, which is really we're in such a privileged position to have that depth of talent throughout the team. And from a diversity perspective, you know, both cultural diversity um, and ethnicity diversity is great. Um, From a gender perspective, we're predominantly female, which is not where I want it to be. I'd love it to be 50-50 if we could. So when we go out for recruitment processes, I'm I'm in the very unique position of saying, show me the guy, where is the male candidate? So that's really nice to be able to do because it's, it's such a role reversal. But, um, but amazingly talented lawyers. So my biggest challenge at QIC is how do I keep them all engaged um, and not wanting to go and do something else? And partly that's QIC's business is so exciting and, um, you know, there's such a breadth of work. But part of it is me being really nimble and agile as a leader and making sure I create those opportunities for our top talent which I'm very focused on doing. So um, it's been a it, it's been incredible four years there. Well, I, I, I obviously have noticed that the number of senior women in the organisation, you know, having supported you on on, on various uh, matters o- o- over the last few years, is that just by complete chance? Do you think or uh, total rather, chance? Rather design, right? Okay. Yeah, it's complete chance. And in fact, when I did the, um, when I set up the leadership team 
it happened to turn out to be about 50% um, male and female. But it was just one of those things that when I looked back and did the structure, completely capability-based, and it just ended up being that way, which was really, really nice. Um, so not by design, just based on capability. That's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's certainly certainly a unique problem, although I'd like to think within the asset management industry, we are we are sort of perhaps more progressive than the other industries um, for whatever reason, perhaps just time timetables yep. to be a bit more reasonable and maybe the time pressures are, are less acute. Uh, just on just on time management, I think when we first met, uh, you kindly agreed <laughs> to meet me in a hotel in London at the crack of dawn, um, <laughs> after which I think you were going to have breakfast with your son and then going to the office and then about yep. to board a flight somewhere. And so I'm, I'm guessing that's sort of a typical day for in Michelle's world, but how do you... How do you try and strike that balance between, I mean, I hate the phrase work-life balance because it implies there's a distinction between the two. And my personal view is, mm. is, 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 is there actually isn't. But, but how do you try and get that balance between, you know, life, life at QIC, family life, you know, time to yourself, God forbid, you know, how, how, how does that play out on a, on a sort of week-by-week basis? Oh, the biggest thing for me is sleep. And very early in my career, I decided that um, it was actually when I was at university, I decided that if it wasn't in my brain by midnight, it was never going to happen. And so I deliberately would shut off and I would not study for another second. And that hasn't always been able, as you know, being a transactional lawyer, being able to be the case. Certainly at Babcock's, that was a complete disaster. Um, But for me, being able to sleep, but not just sleep, but actually switch off completely. So I used to have a process where I would write things down that were in my head, which would otherwise be, um, you know, probably a, a driver for not having the best night's sleep because you're rattling around and you're thinking about things. And I found that when I started doing that very early in my career, I'd wake up the next day and I'd probably have a creative thought about something that I was worried about from, you know, the night before or the day before. So I learned very quickly about the way my brain works and when it's at its best and when I do my creative thinking and when it's not. So I think getting to know yourself and how you perform at your optimum is really important as an individual practitioner um, and and t- trying to tailor your day in that way such that, you know, if you do need to do creative thinking, you can sort of manage it and administrative stuff is left to another part of the day <laughs> when you don't need your brain as engaged. But um, I think knowing yourself, being able to sleep is just so critical and physical well-being. If I don't exercise, I get really cranky with myself, not with anybody else, but cranky with myself. And, um, and I don't like that. So it is, you know, whatever it is, the endorphins and that sort of thing, physicality, it's just so important, I think, for people in terms of the longevity of their careers to make sure they're physically active and physically fit. So we have a big focus on that at QIC and every team meeting. That's really I start with a safe. I'm, I'm taking I'm taking notes now as we speak, Michelle. So, 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 <laughs> so I, think, I think it's just fantastic advice. I mean, is there, is there any other advice you would give to either the sort of the, the the younger Michelle starting out, or or you know our listeners who are early on in their careers who are thinking already, you know, actually I'd love to be a partner, or I'd love to be a general counsel, or I have no clue what I want to do. I just want to get through the day. Is there, is there any other tips <laughs> that you can offer them uh, that, 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 that they could take with them in their careers other than the ones you've already given us? 
I think um, most importantly for me is that the younger people coming through their careers really need to understand and believe that their voice makes a difference. I think that um, I've got a broad ranging age diversity in my team. So I've got paralegals who are third and fourth year law students and I will equally go to them as I will a senior person on a particular issue or point or whatever it might be to get their perspective and I really value that perspective. So I don't think I necessarily would have had that ability to make my voice heard as a really young practitioner but I think now people do have that ability to be heard. So just believing that their voice will be heard and um, that they will make a difference is really important. And I wish I had have lent more on that in my earlier years and um, making up for it now. <laughs> well, I think that's, uh, that's an ideal place to draw the uh, podcast to close. I just want to thank you so much for giving up your valuable time. I know how incredibly busy you are. Uh, as we've heard and uh, I hope the listeners enjoyed that as much as I did I think it was really just fascinating hearing your views on all those topics and thank you very much once again thanks so much for having me I really enjoyed the discussion and um, thanks everybody for listening who's tuned in so I really appreciate it